Good evening. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad you're here for our Ash Wednesday service. Uh, just a reminder before we start that midweek Lent services will be every Wednesday evening here uh, in person at 7 o'clock, also live streamed if you can't make it. Uh, so join us for that in the Wednesdays between now and uh, Holy Week. So we're going to do uh, the imposition of ashes tonight, and if you are uncomfortable with that, I completely understand. I'm going to put my mask on when we do it, and you're free to leave your mask on or take your mask off. And um, if what we can do is have the center sections come forward first, like uh, just take turns uh, coming forward and then kind of go around, and then when the center sections are done, if the side sections want to come through and then filter back around too as well, okay? Okay, uh, let's stand and begin worship. Uh, pray with me. O Lord, have mercy. O Christ, have mercy. O Lord, have mercy. O Christ, hear us. God the Father in heaven, have mercy. God the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy. God the Holy Spirit, have mercy. Be gracious to us. Spare us, good Lord. Be gracious to us. Help us, good Lord, by the mystery of your holy incarnation, by your holy nativity, by your baptism, fasting, and temptation, by your agony and bloody sweat, by your cross and passion, by your precious death and burial, by your glorious resurrection and ascension, and by the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Help us, good Lord, in all time of our tribulation, in all time of our prosperity, in the hour of death, and in the day of judgment. Help us, good Lord. We poor sinners implore you to hear us, O Lord, to prosper the preaching of your word, to bless our prayer and meditation, to strengthen and preserve us in the true faith, and to give heart to our sorrow and strength to our repentance. We implore you to hear us, good Lord, to draw all to yourself, to bless those who are instructed in the faith, to watch over and console the poor, the sick, the distressed, the lonely, the forsaken, the abandoned, and all who stand in need of our prayers, to give abundant blessing to all works of mercy, and to have mercy on us all. We implore you to hear us, good Lord, to turn our hearts to you, to turn the hearts of our enemies, persecutors and slanderers, and graciously to hear our prayers. We implore you to hear us, good Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we implore you to hear us. Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy. Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy. Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, grant us your peace. O Christ, hear us. O Lord, have mercy. O Christ, have mercy. O Lord, have mercy. Amen. Let's pray. O God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they turn from their wickedness and live. And we implore you to have compassion on the frailty of our mortal nature. For we acknowledge that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Mercifully pardon our sins that we may obtain the promises you have laid up for those who are repentant. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated.
Join with me in the psalm reading, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. The Old Testament reading tonight is from Joel chapter 2. This is also uh, the sermon text. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where's their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 6. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Now let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
could, in your bulletin, if you could look over at the Old Testament reading, at the Joel uh, chapter 2 reading, where uh, Joel says that that the Lord is saying, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, with mourning. So this is uh, Ash Wednesday. We're beginning Lent. Ash Wednesday specifically is a day when we remember our sin-caused mortality, that we are all, every second that we breathe, one step closer to being dead than we were a second before. Two things going on here, one on the front end of Lent, one on the back half. On the front end, to, to, to begin to live lives like dead people walking, to begin to live lives constantly in repentance for everything, is not a bad thing, it's not a sad thing, it's a serious thing, but it's certainly a joyful thing because we're headed towards the back half of Lent where God makes us immortal. The ashes that we wear, reminding us that we're headed for the grave, it is a grave that cannot hold us because of Jesus' resurrection. But, of course, more on that when we get to Holy Week. Tonight, let's think about Joel chapter 2. Joel's an interesting book. I, I can't remember if I've ever preached on Joel before. Probably 
At Pentecost, we read Joel chapter, not the one we're reading tonight, but the back half of Joel chapter 2. Joel's an interesting book. Joel is, has very specific historical context. We don't necessarily know the date of Joel, but we do know that Joel was written because there was an unbelievably horrific locust plague in Israel. And Joel writes the book of Joel. He preaches this sermon, which he gets from the Lord, to basically say, what are we going to do? How are we going to cope with this? So it's interesting. So um, uh, it starts off at the very beginning. You know, uh, Joel just says, I've got, I've got, you know, you guys are going to tell your kids for the rest of your, I'm looking at chapter one now. It's not in your bulletins. You're going to tell your kids and your grandkids about what you've witnessed this past year with this horrible locust plague. Right at the beginning, he says, what the cu cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. He goes on later on, he says, for a nation has come up against my land. He pictures this, uh, you know, this massive amount of locusts as like an army, a foreign army conquering Judah. A nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Later on in verse 10, he says, The fields are destroyed, the ground destroyed, because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. It's a massive locust plague, which has gutted the land of Israel. This is, still, this is not an uncommon occurrence even today. Um, actually, this, this past year, 2020, there was a, a very, very serious locust infestation in eastern Africa and India and Pakistan, which did millions and billions of dollars worth of economic damage. The thing about locusts is they can fly like crazy. There's actually evidence of locusts from North Africa flying to South America. It's crazy. And, and they're ravenous. They eat everything. We haven't, had that, uh, so, so we haven't had something like this in the United States recently, but it used to be a fairly commonplace occurrence. Whenever, in, in my house, if you're going to talk about locust plugs, which is kind of a weird thing to say. It's not that we always talk about locust plugs. But okay, so girl dad moment. You're going to talk about the, the Rocky Mountain locust plagues of the 1870s because Laura Ingalls Wilder describes it in detail in the house on Plum Creek. And it's really fascinating. If you go back and read that, I asked Reeve to grab it for me, and uh, she did, and, and I read It's actually, there's so many parallels between Minnesota, the upper Great Plains in the 1870s, and what's going on here. I'll just give you a couple of them. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8 of Joel. Joel says this, that the locusts don't jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. People try and stop them, you know, with different sort of devices. But they're like marching in lockstep, like an army. She, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder says that, you know, the, the locusts are flying around. And then all of a sudden there's a day when they all march in lockstep. Here's what she says. All across the dooryard, the grasshoppers begin walking shoulder to shoulder and end to end, so crowded that the ground seemed to be moving. Not a single one hopped. Not one turned its head. As fast as they could go, they were walking west. Joel talks about the locusts blotting out the sky. The day of the Lord is coming near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Again, this notion of the locusts like an army, and they're so powerful that the sky is black because of them. Laura, Laura describes her particular locust plug this way. More and more of them filled the air, flying higher and higher, till the sunshine dimmed and darkened and went out. Pale faces. Chapter 2, verse 6, Joel describes the people who are living through this 
as like weak and pale. He says, before them, before the locust, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. It's exactly how Laura describes her mother, weak and with a pale face. Chapter 2 of verse 3 describes economic ruin. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. This army of locusts marching through this beautiful land in front of them, and everything behind them is like stripped and bare. In the, in the Rocky Mountain locust uh, uh, plague of 1870s, the locusts, they ate all the crops. And so in, in the story, the Little House stories, uh, Paul Ingalls loses an entire wheat crop, just completely devastated. It's also, they ate wood. They ate people's leather. They ate wool off of sheep's back. There is, from several different states, reports of people trying to run between their barns and their houses and having their clothes eaten from off of them. It's absolute devastation. And how was it dealt with? Well, there was a governor who was in charge at the time decided to say, here's what we're going to do. I can't stop locusts, but I can send you guys relief checks. I will send the farmers relief checks. And of course, you can't, you get the relief check, but you're still, you're not going to be able to raise crops if the locusts keep on eating them. So they elected another governor. It was actually a, a, a man by the name of Pillsbury who was in the great uh, milling family. And he said, well, I, I'm not going to give you money, but we'll try and figure out a way. We'll take a different tack. We'll try and figure out a way to kill the locust. There was a, um, um, in the Minneapolis Star Tribune in April of this past year, April 2nd, 2020, there's a lawyer from Minneapolis named David Lebedoff, who was writing about that locust, that same locust plague. And he said, these two different, uh, these two different political responses to the plagues of the locust, uh, you know, th there was debating at the time about which one was the most effective. Uh, everybody was hoping that one of them at least would be effective. There was a case to be made for each approach, David Lebedoff says. Their merits were hotly debated, but still the menace of the locust raged. 500,000 acres of rich cropland in Minnesota had been destroyed. So the desperate citizens asked for a day of prayer, and Governor Pillsbury obliged. He proclaimed that April 26, 1877 would be the day set aside for Minnesotans to beseech the Lord to end the plague. And as that day of prayer drew near, the heavens opened and Minnesota was gifted with harsh weather, snow and sleet that killed many of the ominous eggs. And the grasshoppers soon left the state. Well, they, they headed south where they were killed a couple uh, years later. They wiped out the, the Rocky Mountain locust, as devastating and as uh, multitudinous as it was, is now extinct. Uh, uh, two reasons why. One is... Uh, somebody came out just unwittingly, this is inadvertent, came out with a plow that plowed about half an inch deeper than the previous plow that they had been using, which was exactly the distance needed to dig up the eggs of the locust. Once plowed up, they, they all, the eggs all died and the locusts were gone. The other reason for it, though, is, that's science, right? The other reason for it is uh, David Lebedoff's reason. The citizens of Minnesota begged the Lord on a day of prayer to get rid of the locust, and he did. Now, uh, you, of course, uh, you out there sitting with your masks on, know exactly why, why David Lebedoff wrote that opinion piece in the Minneapolis Star Tribune on April 2nd, 2020, because he was making a point. And the point is, plagues can only actually ever be ended by God. 
So it's a, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use science. You guys are wearing your masks. Many of you, I'm looking out here, and I see many of you who have already gotten the vaccine, and a lot of you who are on your way to it. But have we actually had a day of prayer? Have we, as God's people, said, God, you have to end this thing. We are imploring you together to end this thing. Or have we been contented like the good Westerners we are to throw politics at it or money or science, all of which is appropriate, right? Have we actually done what Joel is saying to do here in chapter 2? Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. This is verse 12 of our reading. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. It's a funny thing about Joel. He never one time says, here's the sin that you've committed, and now God is punishing you. The other prophets do this a lot. You did not observe Sabbath, and now God is driving you into exile. You have oppressed the poor, and now God is taking, another prophet might say, you have oppressed the poor, and now God is taking the property that you have away from you. Another prophet might say, you have given yourself over to violence, and the blood of the oppressed cries out from the ground, and now I am sending you into exile. The land has spit you out. So a lot of the prophets will say, Joel never does that. Joel never one time says, you guys have sinned, and God is judging you for it. Now, I mean, Joel certainly believes that people have sinned. What's Joel's point, though? Joel's not saying that there's any sort of like, he's not going to answer the deep questions. Which sin did we as a culture commit to cause the coronavirus? It's kind of a nonsense. Nobody can really answer that anyway. Even the, the even deeper questions, is God the kind of God who would cause a coronavirus to happen? Joel's not interested in that question either, as important as it is. Joel just says this. You know what plagues are? Plagues are, whatever else plagues are, they are an excellent opportunity to turn to the Lord. Never mind about who's at fault. Never mind if you even committed a specific sin which caused a specific plague. Don't worry about that right now. Return to the Lord. Why? Let me give you two, let me give you two reasons here. First one is, is because the Lord loves you. Yahweh loves you. He loves you. That's why you turn to the Lord is because he's in love with you. Let me give you three ways this text shows this. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this. Um, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. God relents over disaster. God likes to relent over disaster. God likes to give in to you. Do you know that's what that's, that's, what that's saying? That, that's what that's saying. God loves to give in to you. You know, there's this uh, uh, cliche about grandparents, you know, like, you know, somebody my age has kids. I, I said this before my dad. Like, you know, where was, where was this kind, gentle, uh, doting man when I was growing up? This raging fury of anger and fire and justice is now like giving my kids shakes just because they're like, hey, I'm kind of thirsty. You know what? So there's kind of this thing where like, well, you know, as grandparents are kind of weak, you know, they don't have to do the real job that parents, I actually think that that's probably wrong. Not that parents should be caving into their kids all the time, right? But there's something about the pressures of parenting a child 24-7 that makes you kind of a little bit bitter, a little bit kind of like, no, I'm not going to be moved anymore. And there's something sweet that grandparents get to experience about getting to say yes. And I think that far too often we think of God more like a parent, which, which of course he is, right? 
there's a sense in which God loves to give in to us. He loves to give you good things and to see the pleasure on your face. God loves to give in. Next thing, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord became jealous for his land. You know what that phrase means? The Lord became jealous for his land. It means that God is emotionally invested in you. That God has emotional cash in the game of his relationship with you. He has feelings for you. He's je- Now listen, we all too often, we're like, you know, we think of God in a relationship to sin, you know, God in a relationship to our sin. Sometimes we're tempted to think of him as like kind of a gangster sort of thing. We're like, you messed with me and now you're getting it. And he's kind of cold about it, you know? Like you screw with him one too many times, he's going to put a bullet through your head because he's going to deal with the issues. And lots of times we think about God as sort of like cold and like, bam, you screwed up one too many times. Instead, he's pictured here as weak and vulnerable. This is what jealousy, jealousy is, right? He's weak and he's vulnerable. And when you're away from him, he aches for you. When, when we stray from him, he's jealous about it. Like he has feelings of weakness towards us, not feelings of like, God's default mode is not to blow you up. God's default mode is to crave you coming back. God's default mode is to want you back home. Next thing, last line in verse 18. Um, He had pity on his people. Pity's kind of similar too, right? What does pity mean? Pity, Pity means this, that when you hurt, God hurts too. Like if you know you have pity on something, if you if you see a dog that's wounded, like your heart will ache. Like you want to figure out a way to give that dog relief from its pain. This is how God feels about you. Like when one of your children hurt, like you ache. You're like, I wish I could just take that pain on myself. That's how God feels like. So a lot of times, a lot of us feel sometimes like, I wonder if God's punishing me. Like the bad stuff, you know, this plague. I wonder if God's punishing us, or like bad stuff's happening to me. I wonder if God's punishing me. It's actually probably the wrong way to think about it. You know, that, that's thinking about it as though, like, God has this sense of justice, and he has to enjoy seeing us suffer for that sense of justice to be satisfied. But that's not what's described here. What's described here is the pain that we're caused, he actually feels pity for. His heart aches when you hurt. God loves us. He doesn't just love us. Here's the second thing. He also loves his own glory, and he's convinced that you will never be happy until you are loving his glory too. God loves you, but he also loves his own glory. Look down at verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, the priests are supposed to shout out, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? God, why should the, why should the pagans have a chance to say, oh, you guys worship a God that doesn't do anything about your problems? God, vindicate, this is not a bad prayer. God, do something to vindicate your own name. Show yourself strong. God is passionate about his own glory. And if you put it to him in those terms, like God, do this for your glory. Do this so that the world can see that you are the great physician. He likes that. He's passionate about it. He wants the world to say they have a God who is not a God of vanity. They have a God who does stuff. Of course, we're tempted to think that's narcissistic, right? Like, oh, so, so we're supposed to pray to God and say, God, you want to look good. You better do good stuff to us so that you look good. You know what? You're like that too. You want, 
you want to love your kids in front of other people so that they see that you're a good parent too. Is that narcissistic? No. If that's the only reason why you love your kids, to look good in front of other people. Now, that's narcissistic. But that's actually just human. Look, I, I, Angela and I have dear friends who, some of, some of whom are sitting here in this room, who have been pulled into my love for my kids and my kids' love for me. That love, in evidence, has actually acted like a magnet on some of you. Not because like, I'm some fantastic father or my kids are some fantastic kids, but because that sort of like public love is irresistible. It draws you in. You want to taste it. You want to feel it. When I see you guys talking to each other and having a good time, you know what I think? I wonder what they're talking about. I want to go over there. I want to be with you. To say to God, God, love us publicly so that the world can see that you're a publicly loving God and be drawn to you. That's not asking God to be narcissistic. That's asking God to be who he is, the publicly loving God. That's asking him to get glory from his own character, which takes us back up to the classic verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments, Joel says. Return to the Lord your God. And now here's this classic quote. It's the very, it's very first found in Exodus 34, which I quoted in the sermon on Sunday, where Moses gets to experience the glory of Yahweh. And he hears this great phrase. And then the Old Testament writers repeat it over and over again. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. God's nature is a loving God. That's who God is. God is by nature loving, not by nature wrathful. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Some of us, maybe this is a Protestant problem, some of us have this notion that what John 3.16 should say is, for God was so angry at sin that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say that. It says God loves so in such a way, that he, God loved in such a way that he sent his only begotten son. Everything that God does for you is motivated out of love. He longs to relent from the disaster. He longs to give you good things because he's passionately in love with you. One more thing. This might sound a little bit like God's using pain to do some sort of thing. Let's talk about that just for a second. And let me remind you that the goal here is not pain. The goal is the pain which drives us to him. He wants a relationship with us. If pain will drive you into a relationship with us, he wants you to taste this fruit of our repentance mixed with praise. Look what he says in verse 14. This is about repentance mixed with praise. Who knows whether God will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now let me ask you this. Who is the blessing for in verse 14? Who knows if he won't relent and leave a blessing behind him? Grain and wine. Who gets that? Well, you and I get that. He says this down in verse 19. I'm going to give you grain, wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied. But who else gets it? A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Here, the repentance, the turning back against to the Lord, uh, the turning back again to the Lord is met in that turning with the praise of his meeting us and us celebrating our relationship together. He gives us good things. We give them back to him. The repentance and the praise mixing together to create this wonderful relationship with him. Last thing, so, uh, uh, when the plagues, you know, in uh, the Little House in the Prairie books, when the plague of the locust was finally ended and they left, Laura says this about her mother. She says, Ma went into the house and threw herself down in the rocking chair. My Lord, she said, my Lord. 
The words were praying, Laura said, but they sounded like, thank you. That's what God's going for here. The words of your, the, the prayer of repentance and the prayer of thanksgiving mingling into one relationship with him where we're turning to him for help and he, out of his deep, passionate love, is giving us that help. Who wouldn't want to, like, who would, who wouldn't want to have a day of prayer now? If we're completely convinced that, that who, that's who God is for us in Jesus Christ, why would we not get together and get down on our knees and pray that God would take care of this plague and every other, every other plague that uh, is plaguing us? Let's uh, pray. Let's stand and let's pray. Pray with me. Father, you're gracious and compassionate, uh, like Joel 2 says in Exodus 34, a lot of other texts. Gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. You abound in steadfast love. We pray that you would work in our lives so that we return to you with all our heart. God, set our eyes on you, on your Son, and on your life-restoring word. Lord, in your mercy. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make us grow up in every way into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. By your word, uh, make us holy like you're holy. Forgive our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, in your mercy. Father, grow us up in your knowledge. May we know what it is to live in your presence more and more every day. Help us to learn you, what your thoughts are, what your emotions are, what your will is. Give us yourself and your word and bind our hearts to you. Lord, in your mercy. Father, get rid of this virus. We turn to you as the only one who has the power to eradicate this disease, and every disease, to heal all broken bodies, to repair all broken hearts. Uh, yes, to make all things new. Hear our prayers, Heavenly Father, for we pray in your Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.